Hello everyone, this is Two Guys Five Movies, and this is one of your co-hosts, Chris. Uh, this is Frank. And this week we are doing a biggie. Uh, this is the top five films of the 1990s. So, Frank, uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask you, is there anything that we've talked about so far on any of these lists that has been left off of this list? Uh, it's a pretty big one in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, Pulp Fiction definitely would be on my top five movies, but I feel like, I feel like we discussed it a lot in the Palm d'Or winners, so Pulp Fiction is an honorable top five movie. Um, but not on this list, so we can talk about some other things. Where would it be, probably? Two, maybe, okay. or three. Um, it would depend. I'd have to give it a lot of thought. Yeah. Um, I didn't consider it at all when I was thinking about it, so right. I don't know. It'd be tough. Okay. But I mean, I, I love all five movies on the list, so okay. it'd be difficult to get rid of one. It was. I mean, honestly, I could have done a top 20, maybe even 30, because there's a lot of movies that are pretty great. Yeah, because I, I tried to definitely when you were doing this I tried to do it myself and I just kept adding movies to yeah. the overall list that I would have to try to narrow down yeah. into doing this yeah my note my you know I, whenever I do this I do it in my phone so when I think of stuff I can just put it in my notes and it's it's it's, it's pretty long list yeah and the 90s is I guess especially big for us because this is yeah. kind of like our bread and butter in some sure. ways it's definitely our formative years yeah definitely uh so let's go ahead and jump right in. The number five movie on your list is Braveheart. Came out in 1995, directed by Mel Gibson, starring Mel Gibson, written by Randall Wallace. Uh, it is oddly, I, I thought this was a little low. It's a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and an 85 from audiences. I'm curious if that is a reflection of Mel Gibson's later, I don't know. Rotten Tomatoes certainly has a number of reviews on it a lot of times that come much later than the films that we're looking yeah. at often. So that's like reviews, and there's a lot of reviews from like the past 10 years on there, and that certainly could be something that yeah, people, skews people some of these numbers. People not looking at such great of a light. Sure. So, yeah. So, um, why, um, why Braveheart? I mean, first and foremost, Braveheart is just a really well-told story of uh, a true historical figure told in kind of like an apocryphal way. Um, and it tells the story of William Wallace, who's a educated but simple Scottish, like, Highland, I don't know, farmer or something, whatever he was going to be. Um, his father and brother were killed in, like, some uprising against the king. Uh, he comes back educated, tries to live a simple life with his, his love, uh, gets sucked into, you know, fighting with the British who were, like, occupying Scotland at the time. And then it's just, whatever, three-plus hours of the tale of William Wallace, like, fighting against his oppressors and, you know, his triumphs and his obvious, like, ultimate downfall. Um, really well done... Like, I'm, I'm a pretty big sucker for historical epics. Uh, one of my favorite historical epics, I would say. Uh, it's a... It does a really good job of showing, like, a thousand-foot level of, like, this, this conflict. You know, both on, like, in England and in Scotland and, like, these battles. And some of the battles are really impressive. But it also does a really good job of, like, drilling into really small character moments. And I think that's what kind of elevates it for me. 
um, is the idea that you really do have some well fleshed out characters. Um, you have some really strong female characters, which, um, you know, considering the time period, I guess is kind of probably not, uh, not to say there weren't strong women during that time, but maybe like the way that they're treated and the way that, especially the, um, the woman that becomes his second love, the one from France, like the, mm-hmm. that's married to Longshank's son, um, really well represented. Uh, Gibson gives a pretty fantastic performance, um, all like future troubles aside, like it really is maybe my favorite Mel Gibson performance ever. I don't know. I, I really love the Mad Max movies. So that's hard to say, but yeah, you really like those. Um, it doesn't matter, but I, I, I really like the performances Riggs in the first Lethal Weapon. Too, yeah, and yeah, that's him. true. I forgot about that. He's really yeah. good in this. Even though I don't think that's movies as high as this one in terms of quality, probably. Right. Even though I really enjoy that movie a lot, and I think it's great. For also, this is. I, I see this movie in the theater in 1995 in its original run um, with the girl I was dating at the time. It was pretty powerful. So there's a lot of like nostalgia mixed in with it. Like almost everything that I like really love has a lot of nostalgic feeling in it. But um, you know I, I think it does a good job of like of showing his reluctance, you know, to join the conflict and then his rise. To ultimately get like betrayed by um, the Bruce, um, Robert the Bruce, and then come back again and rise up again and then get betrayed again, um, and ultimately his death and then it's just, I mean I know that it's like a lot of it's not a hundred percent historically accurate. I don't particularly care. Like I think that yeah. it's a really well told story. Um, I think that it mixes. I think and I just said this. I think Gibson's performance is kind of iconic in this movie you know he's got a lot of scenes where he's like bombastic you know when he's riding like rallying the troops and fireballs out of his ass and whatever um but then there's small scenes like when after they murder his you know his fiance or his wife i guess she is at that point um because they got married in secret and you know the captain of the british like occupiers wants to execute prima nocta so he wants to have like sex with her on their wedding night um, so she gets, you know, she gets executed. It's it's pretty pretty graphic. Like they slit her throat and yeah. she dies. Um, and then he's forced to come back and kind of like basically by himself like take down this entire British garrison that's occupying their town. But and that's a really like amazing scene in terms of its choreography and the way that it's filmed. Yeah. Um, the way that he moves between like these buildings to show like to kind of give you the idea that William Wallace is this kind of savage like gorilla almost in the sense that he's like popping out and like it is but also that it, it it's the thing that highlights also or i guess foreshadows his um military genius that comes later to sure. some degree is yeah, the yeah. idea that he's strate- he's a, he's the strategic savage like, yeah and it's a really great scene but the best part of the scene is when he gets the the captain who's murdered his yeah. wife and has him up against the same pole where his wife's throat got slit. And it's just, the reaction on his face is this really subtle shift from furious anger to kind of like almost, not not forgiveness, but sort of acceptance of like the fact that he doesn't want to take this man's life, but then he has to. And then some sadness at like what he's giving up, like this life that he could have had with this woman and of peace. Then he knows that by like murdering this man, 
that he's basically casting himself into this conflict that he didn't want to be any part yeah. of. Um, There's no joy in it for him after the fact. You can see read that on his face, really. Like, yeah, and that's interesting because as like a like a character that's primarily throughout the entire movie like a, like a warlord kind of, yeah. you know, like a rebel warlord, um, never portrays it in any kind of like. There's some amazing fight scenes in that movie and some amazing scenes of like combat, especially on large scales. But it's never done in a way that's overly gratuitous or self-serving. I mean, it's it, it shows, like, combat and wars being horrific and dirty and, like, you know, just small battles between people. Um, and really well done. Um, beautifully shot. Like, the the scenery, like, Scotland is, is beautiful, the way they shoot the highlands and the way they... But also really, like, they shoot it in a way that's also very, like, earthy and grimy. Like, it's got a lot of like muted tones like grays and browns and you know, juxtaposed against like the red of the the British soldiers. Um some great small performances in it. The guy that plays Longshanks is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um I really like the guy that plays Longshanks son too in that role. Yeah, he's really as, good. as stereotypical maybe as it is in two thousand eighteen possibly. I I think he does that role for what's supposed to be there. Well. Sure. I don't know how historically accurate that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little uncomfortable and it's like blatant homophobia sure. where the death of a gay man is played for laughs. Almost a laugh. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of horrifying, but it also is played as kind of funny. Yeah. Especially because he quips. Oh, a quip afterwards, you're supposed to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a little uncomfortable. A horrified laugh, but a laugh. Yeah. Um... The guy that plays his best friend um, and his best friend's dad. I can't remember these actors' names. Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Really, really good performances. The Irish guy who's crazy is a good performance. Oh, yeah. The, the, king, of, um, the king of Ireland. The yeah. French lady. I wish I could remember any of these actors' names or their characters. Is, is that Sophie Marceau? Yeah, Sophie Marceau. Yeah. yeah. Um, and really doesn't feel as long as its running time, which is a pretty considerable... Like, it is, yeah. Like, long... No, movie. it's very well-paced. For somebody who does not like long movies, Braveheart's a movie I've sat through a number of times in my life and almost doesn't in, feel that Yeah, long. almost impeccably paced. Like, I can't think of any time where you, there's a boring lull or where you feel like you're not seeing something that matters. Yeah, because even the quieter moments with, say, the Marceau and um, Gibson, the performances are strong enough to carry through. Sure those moments where it kind of has that downturn in terms of pacing and it quiets down some and it, it usually ends up leading you right into the next action piece to some degree um, or the next like tense scene yeah. it's funny because he tries to recreate this feeling in, in The Patriot right. several years later and fails because that movie's not good um, or not that good uh, but really portrays his character you know for directing himself um with some faults, you know, and as a guy who, you know, like, definitely, like, eventually gets taken down by the British um, through betrayal. But, I don't know, just really, really powerful, really well written. Um, yeah, I, the, the, oddly, the, the biggest criticism, one of the bigger criticisms of this movie is that it's self-aggrandizing. They think because he's directing himself, and a lot of people don't seem to think what you just said is that... He's portraying Wallace as anybody with any faults, and basically that Gibson is directing himself as the ultimate, like, man's man, you know, ultimate lover, ultimate hero figure mm -hmm. in this movie. But I think it could be what you were saying about 
and some of those are contemporary reviews, but um, I, I think a lot of them are much more recent reviews and are now in hindsight looking back. Yeah. At, well, I mean, if so number one, it's a legend, right? Like it's almost it's almost a fairy tale in a lot of ways, you know. And he he does have it. Maybe they don't like highlight enough, but his his trust in people, his loyalty to people, that's his undoing. Like his ultimate faith that Robert the Bruce is going to do the right thing, you know, and gets betrayed by him twice is pretty a pretty huge like bit of hubris on his part you know that he feels that he's right and it really is what takes him down like in the end um and his his unwillingness to like sacrifice his people which could be shown as strengths but at the same time like again you're you're telling a legend and you don't want to it's not meant to be it's meant to be larger than life right it's meant to be like a grand epic story that also has these small moments um i don't know i mean i i try not to ever equate someone's personal life with how i feel about them artistically um i I think mel gibson has done some pretty bad movies but some also some really great movies Mm -hmm. since his controversy Um, i think he's probably a pretty terrible person in real life and i think he's probably got some really bad weird backwards ideals but I don't know I mean in this movie he's pretty fantastic and yeah I agree um, and honestly this was before I mean if somebody has those kind of ideals they probably always had them but at this time when this was made oh, yeah, those, it wasn't apparent or you know anything like that I mean this this is a man making a movie who's one of the biggest action stars on the planet sure at this point yeah. you know I mean very very well respected and up in Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger like spoken of in the same you know breath. Sure. In the age and considered of, the artistic version of those people. Sure. Some sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um. I don't know. Like, it, it. It's odd to have that complaint because then you, like, not to take it in a completely different direction, but you read criticism of things like, like Batman versus Superman, for instance, where a lot of criticism comes from the fact that Superman is made to be failable. You know what I mean? Foul, yeah, terrible. Um, but it's like I don't know. I, I really think they're if if the reviews are that low because I remember the reviews being pretty like contemporaneous reviews being pretty positive. This yeah, movie. the 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 one review that I found that was pretty negative on the movie overall from um, as it was contemporary was from Peter Stack from the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I'm not going to read all of it because I don't think it's worth spending much time on. But uh, the he, he falls into that camp about being self-aggrandizing. He says, The overstated depiction of the freedom-crying hero in sequences reminiscent of the crucifixion scenes in Spartacus are so far-fetched they simply make Gibson look foolishly self-aggrandizing. That's his complaint about that, um, about Gibson himself. And a lot of the rest of it is, um, he says it kind of falls hollow in terms of its message. He says if Gibson's intention is to remind viewers of the Middle Ages were a brutish time for warriors, it's a hollow gesture. Uh, his eagerness to capitalize on the 90s fixation with near-pornographic depictions of violence makes Braveheart inappropriate for young audiences or anybody sensitive to spurting oozing blood and spilled guts. And then he continues on about the violence of the movie and stuff like that. So he seems... I don't know who um, Peter Stack is, but he's that's pretty... For a negative review, that's pretty typical of the 90s yeah. of people criticizing the violence of the 90s in terms of... I mean, I don't find it to be, like, particularly misogynistic. Again, aside from, like, it's 
it's really uncomfortable portrayal of homosexuality. Like you're talking about a time where that was okay to right. do that. Sure. I mean, obviously yeah. it doesn't make it okay now, yeah. but like anything you watch from the past, like there's going to be certain like social mores that are like okay at a different time in our lives. And people ignore his lover, and that is a pretty f- pretty strong character. Up yeah, to the point where he gets thrown out of a window. Sure, but definitely like driving yeah. the prince's you know ideals, and he's kind of like a Shown as sort of a brilliant strategist in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, just that Longshanks is so like megalomaniacal that it doesn't matter. I'm, I'd be interested like how much different those reviews would be if Gibson hadn't directed the movie or if Gibson had directed it with another actor starring in the role. Like, I don't know that people would... I don't know, I mean, you're, you're playing a character. Like, what are yeah. you supposed to do? Like, it's a story that he's telling yeah, I don't know. It's Gibson's the best performance to me, like, overall. Like, the only thing to me that comes close out of his, for me personally, out of his stuff, is, like I said, is is, is the Riggs character. Yeah. But that, even that doesn't even compare to this. I mean, the, the power that Gibson holds when he's the warrior, like, the power in his voice, like, the command that he has of it, like, as he's, like, you know, leading those soldiers, and then being able to go into those softer moments... It, it shows a lot of range. It shows Gibson's the most range that he has, I think, in I think one right. film. Um, but going back to what you said earlier, uh, to me, it's like I'm not somebody who likes epics that much. Uh, I'm not a big fan. I like Kurosawa movies and those kind of mm-hmm. things, and occasionally I'll like epics, but it's like I'm just not a big fan of them in general, like the three-and-a-half-hour war epic. Yeah. Um, but I think what you said about the characterization is... And the quiet scenes, those are the things that pull me into this. Yeah. Is that you mentioned a lot of the characters? I mean, to me, the Bruce is one of my favorite minor characters. Yes, he's really in good. in a lot of movies. And that guy hasn't had that actor. I can't remember Angus something like you know has not had hardly any success really since outside that time movie. outside of that movie. Um, and it's a little hammy when you go back and look at it a little bit at times. Like, some of his reactions and some of his acting is a little hammy. It's very Shakespearean. Yes. Very, very, right. very staged. Yes, it acting. is. Um, absolutely. Like, if it, those old, like, you know, um, Patrick Stewart um, sure. yep. Shakespeare movies that they made and stuff like that. Like, it, he, he would have fit in really well there. But, um, you know, and I know you know what I'm going to talk about is... Uh, because um, I talk about it all the time. It's like my one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie is when the Bruce knows he's betrayed Wallace, and he's waiting for him to arrive. Or no, it's after he's betrayed him, and he's waiting to hear word back on what's happened. And he's standing on top of the dinner table, pacing on top of the dinner table back and forth. And I don't know if, who made that decision. I don't know if it was in the script because I haven't read the script. I don't know if. Gibson made that decision. I don't know if the actor made the decision, but the decision to have him so upset and obsessed and worried and guilty, the fact that he's pacing not just on the ground, but he's like unconsciously stepped up on top dinner of the long dinner table that has like food on it still, and he's just pacing back and forth down. You know, because he's like that out of it. It's like I just thought it was like a brilliant choice, yeah. and it's like his his face in that scene and a lot of scenes really kind of shows the how torn the Bruce is, like by yeah. well, his he's got those super expressive like by self interest and his ideals. You know, I mean, yeah. um, 
and, and those scenes with his father, you know. Um, yeah, the leper father. Yeah, those the, are really good. Yeah, and it's like... Kind of increase our holdings in England. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's, 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 you know... Very, very, very monstrous character. Like, ne- like, Longshanks is the villain of that movie, but really, like, maybe, like, villain, like, 1A or 1B, I guess. Yeah. And a really good, like, villainous performance... Sure, yeah. I mean, because here's the um, utilitarian father, you know, trying to teach his son the ways of the world in this condescending way, and brutal way at times, you know, and, um, you know, this idealistic son who's trying to please the father but can't in some ways because he's incapable. It's a a really good subplot, and it's a really good character, so he's he's definitely one of my favorite characters in that. But but all of those characters are like that. They have these little moments that, like, you know, they really shine through. Yeah, and to what you're saying, like, to your point about not really liking epics, it's because you have, like, it's not just the broad, you know, like, um, like, scope lens of an epic. It's, like, Mm -hmm. the rack focus and, like, the small moment of -hmm. two people having a conversation that lasts for two minutes, but that builds... Mm -hmm characterization that then like takes you through those like sweeping yeah. moments of battle right. and whatnot. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's not that like long <laughs> or that long lens shot all the time. It's like and he does it the scene you talk about when he slits the um, English commander's throat, you know, Gibson does go um, long shots or, you know, long wide shots for a lot of that whole thing until that moment happens. Yeah. When he slits his throat and they get very intimate, it's like you know, it's a it's like a medium close up if I remember correctly. Yeah, it, it makes you like it's like shoulders, you know, where it comes to. So you get to watch him slit that guy's throat and that blood dribble out and that reaction when he turns and faces the camera. It's like he gets real close and it's like that scene almost is like some sort of um, you know representation of that entire movie in some ways of what he keeps doing is kind of like here's the big broad view and then now, now here's the small moments yes. and um yeah I it, it, we probably all the movies you have on your list I know I really like a lot and I uh, to, like to love but um this is definitely the one that we have on the top five that on my top five would probably also be there too um that we definitely share Pulp Fiction as well if we were yeah. on this list but um yeah, no, I, um, no, um, and I have a lot of nostalgic feelings about this movie, too, so, I mean, um, so that could be bias on my part. Um, so, yeah, I mean, other than the self-aggrandizing, some violence, and those kind of things, and that's pretty much the main criticism of this movie, yeah, I, think we, I think we've, and I think we've talked about those enough. The only, the only thing I have to say... It's not even a negative, but I, I do think that some of the dialogue is a little clunky in it. Sure. Like, it's almost a little too... The whole idea of him being the warrior poet, like, kind of becomes cheesy at times yeah. in the way that he talks. But it's it's few and far between, and it's nothing that, in the immediate sense, I can tell you, like, this specific line of dialogue is bad. I just have this feeling of sometimes being like, ugh. Like, all right, Mel Gibson, let's let, let's get past this. Sure, I I think if any of that stuff is self-aggrandizing, it's the um, it's the romantic hero type stuff. Oh yeah, that maybe like the, the best lover when she's talking about how like Frenchmen don't or Englishmen don't know how to like right. use their tongues correctly, yeah, 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 but then yeah, she's right, in love yeah. with Mel Gibson. Sure, and, right, yeah, those kind of things. Um, that's fine. Man's got to man's got to try and get some tails. <laughs> right. Um, one last question about this: Do you? Do you think in what do you think it's like long term influences in terms of epics? Do you think it like kind of reset the stage to some degree for epics from nah, that point? Not really. No. I mean, to me, I think that 
much as I hate to say this, I think that's Lord of the Rings that yeah. does that. Um, I think that anything that you could call like an epic franchise is more influenced by the Lord of the Rings franchise now than it is. Do you think it's? Part. Do you think it sets the modern precedent for establishing shots like the long sweeping, like establishing shots um, that come prevalent in Lord of the Rings and stuff yeah. like that? Like I don't know if I I don't know if that existed. I mean, it had to have existed before Braveheart, right? I don't know. Honestly. Yeah, I don't know about the. I, I don't know about those sweeping shots just because of the technology. I don't know if like. I'm trying to think of something that didn't now. Before that. Did it cause like a glut of historical? I don't know, like movies about. You mean like Rob Roy? Yeah, counterculture outlaws. Rob Roy. Um, what's the other one from that time? There's not anyway. Yeah. Uh, like several movies after that that had the same yeah you know. well it's just like Tarantino's Pulp Fiction sure. creates Two Days in the Valley and Eight Heads of Duffel Bag yeah. all those things you know I mean things to uh, do in Denver when you're dead. yeah things to do yeah right yeah, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> so yeah so one of my one of my favorite okay. movies of the 90s one of my favorite movies of all time from a nostalgic point of view okay let's go ahead and move on to number four okay okay so number four on the list is Glengarry Glen Ross from 1992, directed by James Foley, starring a whole host of big-name actors, Al Pacino, Kevin Spacey, Jack Lemmon, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin in a small role, um, yeah, so uh, Jonathan Price in a small role. So... Um, want to tell the audience a little bit about the movie if they've never seen it. This might be the most if there's any movies that are obscure on this list, it's probably this one for some people. You think so? Really? Yeah, out of these five. Yeah. So it's a really small movie about a office of I guess like real estate hucksters, kind of, that are selling properties to people. Um, it's a combination of older established salesmen um, who are kind of on their way out younger salesmen who are more successful. Uh, the older salesmen feel that they're not, they're not getting the good leads. Um, sort of a... I don't, I don't know if I'd call it like a crime caper, but definitely has some... <clears throat> some elements of like them trying to... the older guys trying to whatever. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean... Like steal from the company that they work for. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a white collar. Well, it's kind of like a white collar crime almost, but it's like or it feels that way. But it's definitely a crime movie. Yeah. To me. Um, I was. It, it's hard for me to characterize this movie like that because to me, it's out of all the movies on this list, and there's some fantastic performances we're going to talk about. This is like the masterclass of acting. Yes. In terms of really really established, powerful actors giving almost like sublime performances throughout it. Uh, there's not a single performance from any of the main actors um, that has any weakness whatsoever. Um, it's it's pretty short, I think, right? Like an hour and a half, maybe, something like that. Um, I can't remember how long it is, but it, it feels really short. Like, it, it, it just drives. And the drive in it even though there is, you know, the, the plot <clears throat> that's pushing forward, like, the film, the drive is really just dialogue. It's just people talking to each other and interacting with each other. And some amazing, like, you, just, Alec Baldwin in a small role, but in my opinion, like, one of the more iconic, like, roles of his career. And definitely 
one of the more like quotable performances in the movie with the ABC, the always be closing. It's also an interesting meditation, I think, on and kind of relevant today, I think, in our society, um, how aging impacts like business and people's social standing and how people that were once successful can feel left behind by not only, I guess, technology and, you know, I mean, they, um, Jack Lemmon's character, Shelley Levine and Ed Harris's character feel like they're being left behind by like the younger ones. And obviously the motivation, motivation in the movie is because, you know, Mitch and Murray, who are the people that own the company that they work for, <clears throat> have sent Alec Baldwin's character, uh, Blake, to go and kind of spur them to be more successful by telling them that only the top two sales getters will be able to keep their jobs and everybody else is going to be fired. Um, and sort of putting them in a position where it's, it's almost like ageism in the terms that they know that the older guys aren't going to be able to be successful because they don't have good leads and they don't have the same access to information that everyone else does. And so they're trying to force them out. Um, you know, Jack Lemon's driven by the fact that he has a chronically ill daughter uh, who he's trying, she's in the hospital, like they never say what's wrong with her, but like that's his motivation to keep his job because he has to, you know, care for her. Um, and really just a, a very simple movie in terms of its plot. Um, like most great, I guess, like crime movies, it's it's not driven by like a lot of exposition, um, but just really snappy dialogue. Um, like brilliantly acted between all the characters. Yeah, I, I left out completely that the f movie is based off stage play, yeah. and written by and, and adapted by David Mamet, and the snappy dialogue is what reminded me of it is because um, I mean his among film or I mean um, stage like his Mamet speak is like famous. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and really influential for like a lot of the rest of the decade in the way that characters talk and the way that they espouse dialogue. I mean it's. And, and I think influential in terms of audience, like to some degree, like, you know, audience acceptance too, possibly, because I, I don't know if you, I don't know if Sorkin becomes as, Sorkin gets a chance with some of the things that he makes, and Sorkin does become pivotal, like, not long after this into even the modern day, really. I mean, um, I don't think that Sorkin gets the chance without Mammoth kind of breaking sure. some of that ground of the of the quick pace like walk and talk. But even even people like Tarantino, I think. Yeah. Um yeah. some other directors too, I mean it's escaping me right now, but it's dialogue that's incredibly naturalistic and also entirely unrealistic. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Like people are using real language but talking in a way that most normal people wouldn't be able to talk, like, in their delivery. So it's got, it's relatable in what they're saying, but also completely, I don't know, like, almost, like, greater than human in the way that they deliver it. Um, you know Mammoth's theory about speech, right? Mm -hmm. Is that he, um, he claims that people instinctively, or maybe naturally, I'm, I'm not sure what word you'd use, um, speak in iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. So when he writes, um, he kind of writes in iams, but it's not necessarily the characters delivering iambic pentameter speech, but 
they, you know, they might get like, you know, six syllables in and another character finishes off the rest of that meter That's for them. So, um, I think some of the stylized nature of the dialogue, like, you know, where it feels very natural because it is how human beings would speak to one another to some degree, maybe that stylized nature might becomes from kind of almost, I don't think he forces it. I think he would also, I think he also says that a lot of times it just comes out naturally like that. I mean, maybe that comes from being like initially and predominantly as a stage writer. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that dialogue has to be delivered differently because you don't have cuts. You know, you're right. filling, filling space, so you're not filling with, like, visuals and montages or whatever. Um, really powerful performances, really sad performances. You know, you feel... Every actor in this delivers. Yeah, 100%. There's, there's no... And it's, it's, again, it's really small. Like, it's a very... As powerful as that cast is, it's a small, like, ensemble cast, but you really feel bad for Jack Lemmon and you really feel bad for Ed Harris and mm -hmm. even um, Pacino's character, R Ricky Romero, is that right? Uh, Ricky, Ricky Roma. Ricky Roma. Like, you, you feel bad for these men who <clears throat> are just living this life, you know, I mean, they're, they live in New York. Again, they're basically just salesmen. Um, but their way of life is almost dying and they're being forced out by these young, brash, <clears throat> I don't know what you would call them, like go-getters you know, from, from their company. Um, it's, it's difficult to discuss like the direction because the direction's competent. Uh, there's some really well filmed scenes, especially like the, the darkly lit scenes in the restaurant and the bar and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the scenes in the rain, which are really claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. Um, but by and large, you know, the entire movie is just propelled by the words that these men are saying to each other. Sure. It's, um, it's two settings. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that, since you're bringing that up, like, you know, one of the main criticisms, and this uh, has a, it's a 94 from critics and an 88 from audiences. Um, one of the few negative reviews came from um, a guy named Desson Howe from the Washington Post. He says that though the performances are satisfying in a projected way, they're nullified by an uninspired atmosphere around them, despite the colorful and witty utterances of its characters. Glengarry feels artificial and rarefied. It's an R-rated teleplay rather than a movie. The stage version of this drama remains the best way to experience it. And he goes on to say that the... that it feels... Um, that it feels to some degree uh, fake in some ways because of the setting and that they keep it down to the two locations. But, I mean, in my own way, it's like, you're right, like... It doesn't stop the movie from being directed very competently. Um, I think about the the telephone calls that you see, like when Jack Lemmon like calls, and it's like, the director Larry Foley like goes in real close in those scenes, and you feel the claustrophobia of that telephone booth. And I mean, obviously, it's also kind of like the mental claustrophobia that like Lemmon feels because the walls are closing in on him because his daughter needs this money. You know, because she's sick and those kind of things. And it's like the way that um, he films Pacino talking to Ricky Roma, talking to um, James Link, the, yeah, the Mark, you know, um, the Price character, like in those kind of like, you know, when Rome is far away from him to start with, you know, and you have that kind of medium two shot and like the way he closes in on him, like Prey almost, you know, when he gets real close to him and those kind of things. 
I mean, it's it's very well filmed. Even like little things, like I don't know if you ever noticed, but um, oh, what's his name, Blake, um, the when they show his car, and I I don't know cars, so it's like, but it's a Lamborghini, I think maybe, um, that he's driving. Um, but they show an, an establishing shot, and the car is parked halfway out into the side street. Like he just pulled up and didn't give a damn where he parked, which I think is one, it's an establishing shot of the place. And it's like two, it builds character. Yeah. So it's like, I think there's a lot of directorial decisions despite the small atmosphere sure. yeah, that like, I, I, I don't necessarily, and maybe the stage play is the right way to see it. I don't know. But I mean, um, I can't really contend with that. I've never seen it on stage, yeah. but um, I, I think there's a lot more going on in the directorial choices, personally, I think, than... No, again, it's, it's a really well-done movie. Yeah. Just from a film standpoint, it's, it's very... I agree good. with you, we're competent. It's very competent. Yeah, very, very tight, very taut. Um, it definitely builds to... Like, when you get the reveal that, you know, Levine, that they did break into the the office, uh -huh. you know, when he's talking to... Was it Kevin Spacey character, Williams, yeah. or whatever, and yeah, he reveals that, that they broke into the office... And stole the leads. Um, it's just it like building to that moment is so tense. Yeah. And when he's trying to get out of trying to get Williamson to not like tell him to like have some sympathy, and the Williamson has no sympathy. It's 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 really sad. And yeah, I don't know. Like Jack Lemon. I mean, isn't his final line Williamson like Kevin Spacey's final line to Levine is "fuck your daughter"? Yeah, yeah he doesn't. Yeah, cause yeah, he doesn't care at all. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the first times I think I'd ever seen Kevin Spacey, maybe. Yeah. Maybe the first time I had seen Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Uh, really impressive performance there. Again, Alec Baldwin's performance. Well, because Usual Suspects is really his breakthrough role, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's three years before, yeah, Usual Suspects. So. What, American Beauty, when is that? Is that That's the same, that's the same year, I think. It's 95, it's a, yeah, 95 or 96, yeah. Um, I mean, so there was a lot of Kevin Spacey in a really short period of time. Sure. Because there's yeah. seven... And then right. sevens before that's ninety five too. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of Kevin Spacey. Yeah, you know, like right in a row. Yeah. Um, another performance that, like knowing in hindsight about Kevin Spacey, not that you really know anything. I don't think about him at this point, but just like what's come out in the media. Sure. Always kind of difficult to watch his performances now because there is like that undercurrent of like menace, and you sort of can see. Yeah. I guess, but really a great. I don't know, just great character movie. Yeah. the Maybe the best character movie in all these films. Yeah, I mean, I include this in Pacino's... I think Joe Montagna played the role on Broadway. I can see that. Yeah, and, um, but it's like, but this is the beginning, is this the beginning? I think it's the beginning of Pacino's run, like, of, like, four years or three years where, like, he's just like lights out like it's basically the 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 second half of his career where it's this uh carlito's way son of a woman and heat all within like a three-year period where he just um has this renaissance in some ways and like this might to me i really like his performance in carlito's way and son of a woman but this might be um the strongest this is definitely the most controlled performance out of all. That's of a good word to use here, yeah, control. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely not the bombast that he has later. Right. You know, the great ass or whatever. Sure. I mean, there's, there's where, where he gets hints of that in Frank Slade and yeah, Son of yeah. a Woman. Yeah. 
he's very he's very much becomes a caricature of himself in a lot of movies, yeah. even though there are great performances there. But in this, it and maybe it is like the dialogue, maybe it's the direction. Um, it really is like a like a masterful performance as this guy that is the top seller in the office, yeah. <clears throat> and you know is fighting to keep this one sale that he actually has like worked to keep. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Um, uh, and I I mean. When it comes to Lemon in this movie, I have not seen all of Jack Lemon's movies, obviously. I think it would be probably too much for me to see. Like, um, But I, I've seen enough, and I think that this is the best, most nuanced performance I've seen Jack Lemon give. Well, because this is Jack Lemon being the comedic actor, but playing it as like a tragic character. Right. And it's, yeah. it's the same guy that you know from, you know, any comedy you've seen Jack yeah. Lemmon in, but with such like a like that weight of like pathos on him, like he's just so so sad and doomed. And when he has that moment where he feels like he's he's made that big sale and he he thinks that he's going to be the one to stay, and like he has all this hubris, which causes him to slip up and reveal that you know he's the one that basically like was in the office the night before mm-hmm. and stole. Um, stole the leads that it's just it's it's so sad it's such like a crushing moment yeah I, I saw a really good YouTube video and god I wish I, I could at least like tell you who created it but I didn't write it down is um, um, kind of like a, a almost like a video essay on this movie of uh, looking at the theme of weakness in it and it's a really good video about this and looking at all the different characters and how all their specific weaknesses, you know, um, you know, end up like being what this movie is about, and how like different people prey on different people's weaknesses, sure. and um, it's it's a really good essay. I I'm, I'm, I think if you probably put in Glenn Gary Glenn or else weakness on the YouTube, you'll find it. But um, it's a really good essay, and it's like Lemon's the weakest, like um, Shelley Shelley the Machine Levine um, is um, is. It's probably the weakest out of all of them in a lot of ways. I mean, he's... Because, you said, his age. His um, age and his reliance on his job to, like, care for his daughter. Right. And, um... and But it's like, he's so beaten down. It's like, one of the things that's so hard to... Because that Blake scene, the, the, the Baldwin scene, as iconic as it is, is also really hard to watch to many. Oh, it's very difficult. Because, I mean, he just... He emasculates... Yeah, he, it's... It, it's all, almost all of them. Like... Arkin's character the most probably, um, but he really goes hard at Levine. Yeah, was it coffees for closers? You know, yeah. you think you're a man, you son of a bitch. Like all that stuff yeah. is. Awesome. Oh, it, it is. <laughs> like I mean, it's like uh, um, <clears throat> the thing. So I was. This was the hardest movie to include on this list. I mean, even though we've talked about it for some time now, it's it's the movie that. I think needs to be seen the most to understand what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. But from like, there was no way I couldn't include it because like I love it so much, mm-hmm. and especially from an early age. Like I saw this when I was pretty young, <clears throat> for the first time. I think it's really relevant today because I think there's a general feeling, like culturally, right now that there's people that are being left behind. Um, older people, you know, certain demographics that feel like the world is moving on without him. And I think this movie is a really good, you know, in the small scale of this one real estate office is a really good encapsulation of the feeling of people 
that were one time on top of everything that now feel like everything has passed them and they're trying to do anything they can to get back on top. And I, I think that culturally, I think that speaks like to a lot of the way that people feel today about how like society views them and the way the society views other people that at one time they thought were like sort of outsiders that now seem more mainstream because of the way that like media and Hollywood and, the arts portraying. I mean, no, that's a really good point. Um, the interesting thing, thinking about that, because I, I, I sense what you're talking about, and um, um, Mammoth's become one of those people. I don't know if you know that. Like, he's somebody who um, is definitely um, clinging to um, a lot of more traditional values and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, and... Um, uh, is on a lot of different um, libertarian shows and stuff, like, a lot of times. So, but isn't that true for, like, a lot of artists as they get older? I mean, these guys are obviously not as actors portraying artists. They're portraying, like, working men. Sure. But, and we were talking about this, like, offline earlier. You know, you talk look at, like, Eminem and Bono and Metallica. Yeah. <clears throat> There's plenty of people. Aerosmith is another good example. That as they age, they still try and cling to the feeling that they're relevant to the youth. But... Mm they've lost some of that relevance and I guess if you're not willing to like reinvent yourself to become more relevant that you can kind of get passed by and that's what's happening to Alan Arkin and Ed Harris and Shelley Levine and even you know Ricky Roma to a point even though he still is like the top salesman like they're people that are being like left behind by the progress of of time and of the needs of like a cutthroat business right so yeah um it's like those people remain relevant through nostalgia, I think, though, sure. to some degree. I mean, it's... But then it, it begs the interesting question, like, can you feel nostalgia for someone and still care for them? I mean, I think that's another thing that's... Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's not to, not to bring up, like, a, a wrestling, like, related thing, but it's like, at the same time, it's like... um it's like there's a certain point where you reach, like, you know, as in professional wrestling, it's like um, so far into your career, it's where nobody's going to boo you anymore. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you're, let's say, it's, it's what they try to do. I mean, it's like probably one of the more famous cases is like, you know, Hulk Hogan when he returns to WWF, you know, and they try to cast him as, as a heel. You know, and they put him up against the rock as a heel, and it's like nobody wants to boo Hulk Hogan by this point. Yeah. It's like he's an icon, he's a legend, so they don't want to boo him. Um, so he gets he gets kind of the cheap pop out of that. And it's like I think that's what a lot of those artists you're talking about kind of are thriving on still is oh hey, it's Bono. Like, you know, awesome. Like, you know, let's like let's go see this artifact, like, you know, because he's in a concert. I'm curious like, if you know, anyone's saying awesome it's Bono. <laughs> I don't know. But um, uh, maybe. Hey, awesome! Eminem's like touring is going to okay. be in Philly. Maybe that's more that's accurate. Funny. But it's like, um, you know, let's go see this kind of relic from two decades ago from my youth. Yeah. Um, they they become a museum piece to some sure. degree. Um, but then, are you willing to like invest in a museum piece, or do you just want to like look at them from afar, right? Right. Yeah. So and no, that's and that's why I was trying to support your point. Really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you anyway, think, can you care? Yeah. So. A movie that definitely needs to be seen if you care about, I don't know, like performance and acting. I mean, I think it's it's got a pretty broad appeal. Um, definitely, like, easily watchable, and it goes by very fast. 
So, um, really yeah. highly recommended. Like, I I love Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. I actually, I, I included it because of the performances over other movies that I think maybe, from just, like, a visceral point of view, like, I like more, maybe. Like, that I would certainly... There's other movies that I would choose to watch, like, right now instead of watching Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but I don't think any of those movies... Like are what? Um, from the 90s. I don't know. You're putting me on the spot. Um, Ed Wood, maybe, or singles even like stuff like that and magnolia there's other movies that i think are better overall films that have more of like more artistic value as an entire piece but don't hold up as well because they're just not as like perfectly crafted as this movie is it really is like one of the most perfectly crafted like character driven movies ever yeah yeah i agree with that I also think it's really. I think I'm pretty sure it's pretty short too. Like I said, I think it's like an hour and twenty minutes, hour yeah, and thirty minutes. Yeah. It's not very long. Right. I mean, it really it, it doesn't. There's not much involved. It's the right. opening yeah. scene, yeah. the scene in the bar, them plotting the heist, right. you not knowing the heist happened, right. the aftermath of that, and then the end, and mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. <clears throat> but no, it's a great film. I mean, I I don't know if I love this movie, I and mean, you know I love David Mann, but it's like. I don't know if I would have the balls to put it in my top five, but I mean, it's, it's it it would certainly probably be in my top ten or close to it. Like, I mean, like if I, but I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, just the, the, uh, that would be because I'd be taking the whole movie and yeah. like you know and that experience into it probably. But I mean, as um, yeah, and when it gets down to like you know characters and acting and all that kind of stuff, like certainly like you know a, definitely a top five movie of that decade probably. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number three, which is um, 1993's True Romance, uh, directed by Tony Scott, written by Quentin Tarantino, starring Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini, Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman, um, who else? Balky Bartokamus. Bronson Pinchot, like, um, Pinchot, um, yeah, Balky. Um, uh, I'm sure there's, like, a... Fred Pitt. Brad Pitt in a small role, Samuel Jackson in a small role, um, in the beginning as a gangster. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much. Gary Oldman, did you say him? Yeah, I did say Gary Oldman. Yeah. Um, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Yep. As yeah, the ghost of Elvis. Ghost Elvis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a ninety-two on, from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-three from audience, um, three stars from Ebert, which I haven't been mentioning. The other two got three and a half stars from Ebert each. Um, three stars from Ebert. Um, so go ahead and explain people the premise of the movie and what you liked about it. So it's a, it's a heist movie. It's a crime movie. Um, it's an underdog everyman who's elevated to almost like a, I don't even know, like a legendary status by his exploits and Christian Slater's Clarence Worley character. Um, just by like his force of will and his like desire for him and his new wife, uh, played by Alabama, who's Patricia Arquette's character. Um, one of my favorite crime movies of all time, definitely from a nostalgic point of view, like neck and neck with Pulp Fiction for my favorite, like frantic, like crime based movies of the 90s. Um, no. Coincidence, obviously, they're both written by the same guy. Yeah. Um, Tony Scott at like his absolute best in terms of a director. Um, 
amazing performances like in really small roles from people and especially Gandolfini and Hopper and Walken and even like Brad Pitt in like the five minutes that he's in that movie um heavily influenced by comic books I think in a lot of ways by the um the Hong Kong action of like John Woo both of which are referenced in the movie Mm-hmm. that's not me being like smart and like figuring that out like it's obvious that like they show a better tomorrow too they show you know Clarence really works in a comic book store um snappy dialogue uh really like driving plot very tense and like you're rooting for Clarence in Alabama to like survive and make it um I guess there's multiple versions, one of which implies that Clarence did survive and made it down to Mexico to live with. That's the original version where they're all alive, right? Yeah, Maybe. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they're 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 down in Mexico. The final scene is like them like on a beach on the beach with the kid. But then there's also another version that implies that he's dead. Yeah, that was the one I want to believe. If I remember a commentary from 15 years ago, um, I, I want to say that was Tarantino's original ending is where it kind of ends with, and I think they filmed it, with Alabama like walking down the highway by herself, which is very Tarantino-esque, yeah. like with a gun in her hand or something, like, you know, um, maybe with a baby, I can't remember, maybe it's like in the future, it's like a baby strapped to her or something, but it's like, um, <laughs> you know. Some post-apocalyptic Alabama. Yeah, right, yeah, but, um, uh, but yeah, that's the original ending. Is when it, where he survives. It's like the feel good ending, and I don't think Tarantino liked that very yeah. much. Um, my app, my favorite Christian Slater performance ever. Hmm. Um, I actually probably have a lot more affection for Christian Slater than many people. Like I think that Christian Slater is a pretty. I think he's a very likable guy. Pretty good poor man, Jack Nicholson hmm. from like the eighties and nineties. Um, but like I. I don't know, maybe it was just my mindset. I, I saw this movie, what did you say, 93? 93. So I saw this in the theater, so I was probably 16 years old yeah. when I saw it. Um, really just it, the, the feeling that this guy who's kind of, because he's, like for my group of friends, he was us, right? So he's a guy sure. that's, he's a nerd, he's socially awkward, you know, he has this prostitute that falls in love with him. He's escaping from these much more suave and deadly like criminals that are after him, outsmarting people like at every turn. Um, just through again like the, his force of will to like get away and like make a better life for him and his bride. Um, really, like amazing performance by him. Just in, and maybe this is like like rose colored glasses of like nostalgia or whatever, but. So this is side story mm-hmm. to this movie. Um, when I was in high school, I was part of the the high school newspaper. Mm-hmm. But my friends and I also had like an, a quote unquote underground newspaper that we made as like a <clears throat> whatever. Like we were just trying to be rebellious. And my pseudonym in the paper because we couldn't put our real names in, as so we wouldn't get in trouble, was Clarence Worley, based mm-hmm. off this movie and my love for this character. Um, so many small scenes between just like one or two people that are just brilliant. Um, the Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken scene, the eggplant scene is pretty amazing. Um, just two, because this is really before Walken becomes like ubiquitous in the 90s, you know, which I guess Pulp Fiction with the watch up his ass 
um, scene kind of like made Christopher Walken's career for the rest of the 90s. <clears throat> but a really good menacing performance by him. Great scene, you know, kid, you got heart between Gandolfini and um, Patricia, Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Um, Bronson Pinchot, like the nervous producer. Uh, yeah. Another just... Coke-addled. Yeah, Coke-addled. Yeah. Just small small role, yeah. small scene, but really memorable. Yeah. Um, even like Brad Pitt, like this, a scene that if, if you know me, you've heard me say, condescend me, I'll right, fucking right, kill you. Yeah. Like one of my favorite lines of dialogue in any yeah. movie. This, this pothead like coming out of his like, you know, like high to like insult this gangster right. after he's left. Right. <clears throat> um, I, I don't know... I don't know, like, philosophically, from, like, a, I don't know. It, it's just, it's a really good crime movie. It's a really good road movie. It's a really good caper movie. Um, Tony Scott is an uneven director. Uh, Tarantino's a pretty brilliant writer. And Let me ask you this question, because I had it listed here, is what happens if Tarantino directs this? If you had to kind of, if you had to imagine... I don't... Do you think it makes it better? I don't know about that. It's hard to say because... I think that the way that Taron... I, I think that the script directs the movie in a lot of ways. So in a, in some minor way, like Tarantino is kind of directing that movie. Just because sure, of the way... because he's, he's a good screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. because I've, I have... I own... At some, I might still own it somewhere. I own the script of True mm-hmm. Romance at one point, yeah. And like I read it. And it's... It's pretty clear that like he's driving the action in that movie. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's better. Maybe yeah. not. I don't know. I just wonder. I mean, not that there's bad performance necessarily. I just wonder if Tarantino could have put his own vision on it, if some things would have stood out even more. Like. So it's it's interesting because you look at the characters that are cast in this movie, and it's very Tarantino esque in the way that they take people who we're sort of, I, I hate to use the term washed up, but maybe we're kind of left behind a little bit, or we're undiscovered, um, and cast them in roles, like, Bronson Pinchot is a joke at this point. Like, he's Balky Bartokamus. Right. You know, Cousin Larry Al. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cousin Larry Don't, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> um, and he like, casts him in this role that's completely the opposite of, like, what that character is, you know? Sure, yeah. Um, same thing with, with Dennis Hopper. Well, Dennis of, Hopper, like, you know, a few years before this is doing, what's that damn movie? Flashback, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's like he's he's a, he's a mock... It's like he's being cast as the old hippie who's, like, still a stoner. Yeah. And, you know, mocking him to some degree. Sure. And it's like, um, yeah, and he pulls Hopper... And this, in this movie, he sacrifices his life to buy his son... Yeah. You know, like a couple hours worth of time. Sure. I mean, and it's a year after this movie is like he's in Speed, which kind of revitalized a little bit his yeah. career, like at that point. Um, in my notes, I have the the scene you talked about, um, the Alabama um, Gandolfini. James Gandolfini scene is like... It's a powerful scene. It is. Like, I mean, it's extremely well directed. It's, for a movie, like the violence is to some degree at times cartoonish or off-screen in this movie. It's not a Tarantino movie no, in the not. sense of like how gruesome it can be in Tarantino movies. Which is why it's funny that they juxtapose, you know, he's watching A Better Tomorrow too, Right. Which John Woo is super, like, fetishizes, like, violence and to the point of, like, slow motion. And that's not what this movie is about. Like, this movie is, like, a character-driven, 
<clears throat> there's violence in it, but it's not to the forefront. It's more about like talking about it as opposed to actually doing it. Well, violence is a threat always. Yeah, you yeah. know, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not the actuality all the time until towards the end or a couple places in the middle. I guess. Yeah, yeah. But um, there, there, there's a. But it's times. like, but it's, but it's like um, the brutality, like the intimacy and the brutality of the of the scene where Alabama gets beaten, is one of the hardest things for me to watching the yeah, movie. Yeah, it probably. is. It's very difficult. And like how, and the makeup they job they did on her face, like in terms of like how just battered she is. The stuff um, like, like dripping out of her nose. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just really, really difficult yeah. to watch. Um, you know, and then the, you know, and then of course the line you said, like the respect that like that character like kind of has for her after taking this beating. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's like. she won't give up. She right. won't give him up. Yeah. And it's like there's a sadness to like, you know, this brutal thug you know like having to do this to her because you know he respects her to some degree and then the other one is the dennis Hop- the, the big dennis hopper scene um with him and walking oh yeah fantastic which is you know i i watched that the other night because i didn't rewatch this movie because I, I know it pretty well but um i rewatched that scene and did you know it's nine minutes long yeah that feels right and it's like, you know, out of what, a movie that's probably like an hour 45 maybe or something like that? It's like nine minutes of this movie is devoted to this relatively true, like minor character. But it's like, what a damn brilliant scene and acting job by those two guys, you know? To be able to just most of it be a little bit of repartee and then Hopper telling a story for half of it. You know, and you're captivated the entire time. It is like, you know, I mean, hell, half of it, like, there's there's probably like a minute total of him just smoking a cigarette. You know, it's like watching like the different ways he smokes it, like the long, luxurious drags when he ha- kind of oh, has. Oh, he knows it's his last cigarette. Right, right, but then like the nervousness in terms of like, you know, kind of like, like cupping it and like pulling it to his mouth a little bit more when he knows the time's coming. Yeah. It's like brilliant acting, even in just terms of smoking a damn cigarette. Um, and then it's like that song's playing in the background. Um, um, I looked it up the other night, the flower duets from Lock Me, I guess. But um, the, the the classical music's playing in the background of that is um, like a brilliant, like you know, like score that's put over top of it, like towards the it? end I'm, of the scene. I'm an eggplant. Well, you're a cantaloupe. Yeah, which is an, which I've read is uh, was an ad lib line from Walken. Yeah, that's, um, that's pretty brilliant. The eggplant line was in it, and um, Walken. Um, Responds um, in an ad lib in the scene. Well, you're a cantaloupe, you know, and they both start laughing again. Um, One of the things that I really enjoy about this movie is, um, and this is like a common theme, like when we talk about movies over the course of like any of these podcasts, is that Alabama is a strong character in her own right. Like she's not just a damsel in distress or like a side piece to you know. Like, they're definitely a team, and she definitely makes him stronger and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I really, like, I have a lot of trouble watching movies where women are, I don't know. And I watch a lot of exploitation movies, obviously, I've seen, like, a lot of movies where women are just kind of, like, set pieces or Mm -hmm. whatever. But I, I really find it refreshing when you have a female character, especially pre like 2000s that is a strong character that carries like her portion of the movie um we we talked about it in previous podcasts but like sally field's character in Smokey and the bandit like i like the strong woman that's supporting and like an equal partner to the man she's with as opposed to just being like 
the damsel in distress, which sure. I it won't like a, is a trope that I really dislike a lot. Yeah. So, and one of the few times I actually like Patricia Arquette in a role. Honestly, like I'm not a huge yeah, I'm not a huge fan of her. Like the entire all, Arquette family is kind of yeah. Well, she's. I mean, uh, they they certainly make her a very likable character. I oh, yeah. think in a lot of ways for know? being a, a prostitute. You know, I mean, she'd been. Well, the thing is, and. Uh, there's some things about oh, this no, movie. She, that he's he's she, her first. She had been, she, yeah, he's she, her first she had John, been a prostitute right? for like four days or something, and he she was he was the first John, like yeah. you know, because that's um, the um, oh, shit. What is Gary Oldman's character's name in that movie? Drexel. Yeah, yeah. One of right. my favorite Gary Oldman performances, and again, like <laughs> out of a slew of like ten performances, amazing. That are, they're Gary amazing, and it's like right. It's I wish like, I could remember the lines. I haven't seen this movie in probably about five or six years. I mean, so. the famous one is Motherfucker Thinks This White Boy Does. Yeah. That is the really famous one, I think, out of that. But, yeah. Um, no. That's I, my Michael Rappaport, right? Oh, yeah. Scene? Yeah. Yeah, but he's... Well, no. Uh, is Rappaport's out in L.A., right? He's like a friend of Clarence's that's out in L.A., is that right? Maybe. I'm pretty sure Michael Rappaport's in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he is. Yeah, Michael Rappaport's in it. He's... Um, yeah, he is. Yeah. I just it's, it's like it's like a who's who list of like actors from the '90s. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't been asking you this. Um, I actually with this movie, I really like this movie a lot. But I kind of agree with Ebert, and um, he says there isn't a moment of true romance that stands up under much thought, and yet the energy and the style of the movie are exhilarating. <laughs> it's like I, 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 I think he's minimizing the performances some, but I think in terms of like the concept of the movie, I think. Right, like yeah, he's you know, not wrong. I you mean, don't. It, it's not a movie that you want to think about too deeply necessarily, because then start things. I do think like Alabama starts becoming almost cartoonish in some ways, like as an actual character. But if you don't think about it that much, or you know, this is the story they're telling, and just yeah. go with it. I mean, look, I I love John Woo's Hardwood, one of my favorite yeah. action movies ever. That movie is absolutely ridiculous. From like the standpoint of considering it as like a realistic series of events but it's amazing to watch it's just like a spectacle and this this is a brilliant crime movie in the sense that it it's driven and it's fun to watch and it's got great dialogue and great interactions and I, I hate the term like turn off your brain like I know that that like over a decade ago became popular when people decided they didn't care about like things being good Right, they just wanted to watch fucking Transformers or whatever, but it really is something. Not, where, not even that. We got into a big argument with some friends, if you remember, that tried to use that argument for things that were um, that maybe did deserve a little bit more thought, like um, Shyamalan movies and stuff like that. Like, yeah, and those are some pretty. And those, those aren't stupid <laughs> people that we had that argument with, and they were still making that argument. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is something where you can be mentally stimulated watching it. Like it's got some really interesting things in it. But you don't have to... You can suspend your disbelief and just enjoy it. Sure. I think that's an important part of watching movies yeah. is that suspension. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, I mean, yeah, if you pick at it too much, it's going to fall apart sure. in ways. But it has a good enough... It's good enough to have you suspend your disbelief. I mean, in so, a lot of ways, it really is like an homage to, I don't know, Bonnie and Clyde, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, basically the story that's what it is, yeah. that they're telling. But... Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely what Tarantino's thinking. Definitely in, like, a hyper-stylized way. And Tarantino does this again in a way with, like, Natural Born Killers, sort of. Mm -hmm. But to, like, a much more ridiculous extreme. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. One, one of my favorite movies ever. Definitely um, from a I haven't been asking you this, but is there anything about this movie that you that you can stand out that you think you dislike or the, that you're not fond of? It's, I, I can't answer that question about this movie. Like, I love everything about this movie, probably. Yeah, there's one thing that I don't like about this movie. What is it? The Elvis stuff. Oh, I think that's funny. I don't I don't. I, it doesn't, because it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I don't like that, like, in this movie. Like, that's, that's the one thing I've never cared for in this movie is this... Is is this you know mythical Elvis consciousness of work that's in the back of Rolly's head that's like you know talking to him and giving him pep talks like I I, I just never isn't cared it, for those couple scenes it's a, it's like it's like two scenes two but scenes it's like, yeah so I mean, isn't it just it's this is a guy that had no self confidence and no sense of self worth and this is just his way of like psyching himself up by taking a character that he idolizes like a an idealized version of a real person and making it personalized because he doesn't have his father or he doesn't have any male role model to look up to. Absolutely, and it's a very good um, um, analysis of that and like it's probably exactly what he meant and I still don't like it. I, I just don't like it. I don't think I, I... I just don't like it. I don't like the way it's, that Scott films it. I don't like... Well, because it's... Like, they're not going to show Val Kilmer as freaking Elvis. Like... What do you what do you see? Like you see his hand in his sleeve and like yeah, his... he films it as kind of this like hazy way. It's like yeah. and like I don't like the shots of it. Like I, I just I just don't like the the scenes that much. It's like the it's the one small thing where I'm yeah. like okay, come on, like get this two minutes over with. It's the only thing out of those, that movie that I'm not a big fan of. Yeah, I don't think those Elvis scenes that does not work the movie in any way whatsoever. Even I'm even just not like a personal fan of them. Even the latent racism of like Hopper's character and also Walken's character in a lot of ways because Hopper is using the fact that the Moors colonized I don't know if the if Hopper's the racist one I think Hopper is we don't know that I think it's a, it's a, it's a Hopper's unknown. definitely playing on It's an unknown unknown for Hopper's character yeah. but he but it's a, but it's a it's a known for the Walken character and he's using that against him. Yeah. 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 Even that like because it's it's not a commentary from the movie itself. It's a character in the movie, like, trying to provoke a reaction. Like, even that doesn't necessarily... That doesn't Where those things, like, kind of bother me in some movies, especially from, like, the 60s and 70s. Oh, I think it bothers you in some of Tarantino's movies, too. Well, I that we've talked about. But, I mean, I it, this does not bother me at all. That's why I can't really, like, watch Tarantino movies and appreciate them anymore. Because, yeah. anyway, that's a but, yeah. conversation. But, um, I, but I, uh, this doesn't bother me at all. Like, it's, it's a character-driven... It's 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 a good guy fucking with a bad guy, you know. As um, he's getting ready to die, yeah. and like rubbing in his face Trying and using his own kind of his weakness. own prejudices right. against him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, if you ever want to kill an hour and forty minutes or yeah. whatever, and just enjoy yourself and lose yourself in a movie, this is a great movie to watch. Um, again, really great performances from some some good actors and some really small performances that stand out. Just yeah. a lot of fun. Absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay, so the second movie you have on your list is from 1996, Danny Boyle's Train Spotting, starring Hugh McGregor, Robert Carlyle, Kevin McKidd, Ewan Bremner. Um, has a 90 score from critics uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and a 93 score from audiences. Ebert gave it three stars. But was very complimentary in those three stars. Um, you want to go ahead and explain a little bit about the movie and what you liked about it so much? So it follows the exploits of five friends 
in um, Scotland, early 90s, I guess is when it takes place. Um, heroin addicts, petty thieves, um, violent criminals in one case. Um, just basically their lives and what happens um, through like their addictions and their relationships and whatnot. <clears throat> one of like one of the seminal moments in my like youth going to see this movie. Um, saw it. It came out in ninety six. You said ninety six. Yeah. So I guess I guess a year or so after I'd seen Pulp Fiction, um, we actually went and saw this movie on opening day in Philadelphia. I think. Um, really, uh, it's it's a very very fast paced movie. Um, one of the common themes with like films of the '90s that I really love, it's got really snappy dialogue. Um, some really great commentary on addiction and what a make what addiction makes people do to the people they care about. Um, first, maybe the first time I'd ever seen Ewan McGregor in a movie. I'm not sure if I'd seen him before then, but definitely the role that like you know that I came to know him for. And, Shallow Grey was before this, right? Yeah, I don't think I'd seen Shallow Grey yet, though. Um, certainly the movie that gave me hope that he would be, like, the next great, like, actor. Mm. Which, not quite sure that he ever lived up to that and promise. Um, one of the most phenomenal soundtracks. Um, the punk slash, like, the 70s and 80s punk mixed with, like, the contemporary, like, acid house, I don't know, like, techno DJ style music. Um, some incredibly memorable scenes, um, you know, the scene of him, like, shooting heroin and sinking into the ground to Lou Reed's perfect day, um, the baby crawling across the ceiling when he's trying to detox, um, (laughs) so many scenes with Begbie, uh, the Robert Carlyle character who's just, like, a violent sociopath that you never really understand why they associate with him, except for maybe they're too afraid to not. Um, also another crime caper in a lot of ways, but it's a very, very under, it's a major plot point, you know, when they, they steal the heroin and they're going to sell it and then Renton, Ewan McGregor's character betrays everybody to leave, um, leave them all behind. Just, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to talk about this movie because I really do love it so much and it, it does mean so much to me. Um, one of the few movies where I appreciate the film so much more than the book, uh, this and Fight Club maybe are the two examples I can think of like immediately, um, where I think the film version is much stronger than the novel. Um, yeah, just, I, I don't know. Like, again, the, the combination of the performances, um, the dialogue and the ideas behind the dialogue, it really is about, like, coming of age and finding yourself and sort of the whole like choose life thing which is like a sarcastic reference to like an any drug campaign from the 1980s um in scotland um but you know choosing life is do you choose to get high and just like live as like a hedonist basically or do you choose to live a button-down life where you have like a bank account and a mortgage and a wife and children and you know renton's growth from being the guy that's choosing the hedonistic lifestyle 
and then deciding he's got to choose the different life, but sacrificing everyone he cares about to do mm-hmm. so. Um, some really fantastic direction from Danny Boyle, um, who's like hit or miss with me in terms of like his films, but in this case, like it breaks the fourth wall enough to kind of feel surreal at times, but then also feels like very very immediate and dirty and like realistic at other times. Um I don't know. Just pretty yeah. pretty amazing movie. I read I can't remember the writer's name, last name is Welsh, the original writer of the novel. Urban. Urban Urban Welsh. Yeah. Um and I know that he said that people wanted to option that a number of times and he turned them all down because the quote was they wanted to make a a po-faced take on the novel um, like this kind of like humorless like you know disapproving um, take on the novel um, in the vein of uh, what's that movie The Basketball Diaries Mm -hmm. Um, and he was impressed that um, when Danny Boyle met with him, I guess, he was really impressed by Boyle seeing the humor um, in the novel and having vision for some of that humor um, inside of all the misery. Um, yeah, there's and why he allowed an option. Definitely some funny moments in that movie. And it, it it's 100% a black comedy. Sure. Yeah. Um, but really black in the sense that, you know, the blackest. Your one true sympathetic character, which is the Tommy character, who's this golden locked, you know, soccer playing, like, guy that's never fallen into drugs or crime with the rest of his friends, that has a loving girlfriend and lives this life that's, like, brought low by really just the inhumanity of the people that he considers to be his best friends and falls the furthest where... He's the only one that doesn't survive, you know, the movie. Right. Um, yeah, I think rewatching it, because um, I saw it, I didn't see it in the theater like you. I saw it probably, so in 97 is my guess, around that time. It would have been a year to come out on video, and I saw it pretty quickly then. Um, so it's been over 20 years since I, I haven't watched it since. And uh, rewatching it again, um, I definitely connected with it more this time. My guess is. My guess is 96 or 97, it's like I'm 16 or 17, and maybe I didn't, I couldn't sympathize as much maybe to some degree with the characters at that age, where probably in my like early 20s I start like, you know, sympathizing like a little bit more because it's like, the idea is you're stuck in this dead-end town. Yeah. You know, and it's like, what the hell do you do when you're stuck in this dead-end town? It's like, you got this kind of... It's an either or fallacy, but it's like, yeah, you got, you know, the button down life where you go and you live, be respectable, or you got this life where you just kind of drop out and like, you know, like you said, live this kind of hedonistic lifestyle. But her, yeah, and so the choosing like the, the button down life, like the choose life portion of that is living like their parents and like right. none of them want to be their parents. Right. I mean, Renton is disdainful of his mother and father who are both like good people that love him and try and take care of him. Sure. But he just disdains that life of like almost like mediocrity. He, right, yes, and that, yeah, that's how they view it. Absolutely, it's me, that's a good. That's that's the right thing is that they view it as like a mediocre lifestyle. But I think watching it again, I think the thing I that like just sh- shocked me as I'm watching it is, I mean, he used the word deplorable the other week, but it's like you know, 
how deplorable Renton really is as a human being. It is. Especially in connection with the Tommy character. Like, I think that was the thing that really hit me the hardest, is, like, watching it, is how Renton... His actions lead Tommy to losing his girlfriend, which leads him to asking to try heroin for the first time, which he ends up buying from Renton. And he gets addicted. You know, Renton gets clean, kind of abandons him and moves away. And then by the time he comes back for his funeral, it's like his best friend's dead. To some degree, you know, not by his hand, but by, certainly by his actions, his yeah, past definitely. actions. And he's sitting there getting town gossip about how he died in the, in, the, in the back row of the funeral. As if he doesn't give a damn that, this, that he's culpable in any way or that his best friend is sure. dead. And it's like, there's this, no matter what, whether it's the addiction or whether it's even like trying to live clean... It's like Renan has this um, distance from everybody, regardless yeah. of that. He's definitely an egomaniac. Yeah. And almost a sociopath in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny because in the movie, Begbie and Sick Boy are the two characters that are presented as the most irredeemable. Sure. Like on the surface. Like, I mean, Begbie is a monster. Yeah. And Sick Boy also is just very openly disdainful of other people. Yeah. But both of them still have like an overriding... Although movie. at least Sick Boy you can sympathize with because he doesn't become that entirely until after that baby's death. That's true. And he and he falls into that character kind of, you know, he recreates himself into that role a lot more where Begbie's always a, yeah, <laughs> is a sociopath from the beginning. Yeah, like... Now, one of my favorite scenes from the 1990s is them sitting in that bar where they're up on the second floor and they're talking and Begbie, like, drains his pint and then throws it over his shoulder and comes down, like... That poor girl's all busted on yeah, her like, face. Bleeding, and he's like, nobody's leaving here until we find out what cunt <laughs> threw that bottle. Yeah. And then just starts, like, fighting. Right, him. yeah. Uh, um, really great performance by Robert Carlyle. Mm-hmm. Um, Ewan, Ewan Bremer as Spud who's yeah. like almost unintelligible half the time and just complete like waste um, but really fantastic performance by him um, I don't know just it's it's not a very hopeful movie and it's funny because it almost ends on a pseudo hopeful note in the sense of Renton like choosing life and leaving yeah. like with the money and leaving the money behind for Spud because Spud's the only person that he feels like deserves to have any mm-hmm. but really only because Spud saw him you know what I mean like Spud like is the one that sees him leave and doesn't like yeah I think that's ambiguous a little bit is like is it because he saw him or is it because he recognizes Spud's the only one that is like kind of like um, as innocent as you could be in those circumstances yeah. it's, it's, it's difficult to know I think um, and it's certainly his that ego presenting itself and that he's going to be the decider of who ends up getting some of this money. But him walking away is, um, it's like, you know, it's, it still doesn't feel like a good thing necessarily. No, because he has that look on his face, like the final like shot of him in the movie, mm-hmm. where you don't ever feel like Renton has learned anything. Renton's just used his own sense of self-preservation 
one more time to get away from like a bad situation. Um, and only a bad situation where he's leaving all of his friends in that same bad situation. Um, it's interesting to note, and you haven't seen it yet, and I haven't seen it until last week, but um, the sequel actually does a really good job of playing on all of those points and addressing those points. And I'm not going to say anything because you, you should watch it. Yeah. Pretty clean. Um, and anyone that's seen Train Spotting and hasn't seen T2, um, Train Spotting 2, they call it T2, not Terminator 2. Um, you should go into it without spoiling yourself because it's it, it's pretty fantastic the way that they wrap every single plot point from the first movie up, you know, 20 years after the fact. Um, and address many of the things that we're talking about right now. But, <clears throat> again, amazing soundtrack to this movie. I mean, like, the, you know, the Lust for Life song, like that driving, like, the Iggy Pop, like, music, um, the Underworld, you know, the Sad Boy, Sad Boy song, um, the music when he meets uh, the young girl that he ends up having, like, a relationship with in the club. Uh, I can't remember that actress's name or the character's name, but the young, like, wayfish, yeah. like, schoolgirl that he falls mm -hmm. in love with. Um, just, I don't know, per perfect day when he's, like, sinking into the ground is one of the, yeah. like, for his overdose. Yeah, it's a really good scene. Yeah, one of the most powerful, mm -hmm. like, mixtures of music. And one of the other great things, you know, about it, too, is that it's, sometimes I feel like when, when films use popular music as a soundtrack, like, as opposed to just having a score, sometimes it feels forced. Yeah. Like, you're forcing a lyric to fit a scene or vice versa. Like, you're crafting yeah, a Bledsoe, scene. I remember Bledsoe being the first person I heard talk about that, that he hated it in modern films. Um, it's like, the song is, let me say, the song's too perfect for the scene. And it feels forced and yeah. unnecessary. Yeah. But this, it's it's just it's like a driving force, and it's the music that. One of the minor plot points in this movie is their love of music, like mm -hmm. their love of modern music, and especially Vicky mm -hmm. Pop, and just the driving force behind like the music and the way it melds with the movie is it's 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 pretty perfect. Yeah. Um, I um, Eber brings up a really good point, I think, and I don't know of anything with Ebert having addiction issues, but I thought he was um, pretty on point in part one paragraph of his review, um, and I don't want to turn this into a symposium on addiction whatsoever, which we could probably talk about for sure. a while, but I mean, um, he says that former alcoholics and drug abusers often report that they don't miss the substances nearly as much as the conditions under which they were used. The camaraderie of the true drinker's bar, for example, where the standing joke is that the straight world just doesn't get it, doesn't understand that the disease is life and the treatment is another drink. The reason there is a fierce joy in train spotting, despite the appalling things that happen in it, is that it's basically about friends in need. Um, and I really think he touches on like the the true nature of the addiction to some degree in that paragraph. Um, yeah, I think that's right. That's a really that's a really good good yeah. quote and a really good point. Yeah, because you think about the terrible things they have to go through for their addiction. I mean, they're they all live in squalor. You know, mm -hmm. they're shooting up in these like squalid places with these deplorable people. I mean, at one point, you know, the heroin is dried up <clears throat> in Edinburgh, which is where it takes place, yeah. and Renton has gotten the suppository. Mm -hmm. that he, you know, 
like his stomach turns and he shits it out in the you know worst toilet in Scotland <clears throat> and does that like tremendously fantastic scene where he's like diving into like you know and he's like swimming through like all this like shit and minefields and stuff to get like this yeah get past this you know where I feel um <laughs> like illustrating it's like it's that and the spud scene are the two things that bother me the most in this movie probably oh, the, is the, because of my problem with like feces with, like yeah, with poo. The, yeah. the spud scene is hilarious like when he's carrying that I, I, want, I want to watch these sheets and then they pull it and it just goes uh, all over the uh, place oh like chocolate pudding like everywhere it's, uh, it's terrible but hilarious like it makes you laugh really hard um I don't know it and at the time when I was that age, I was really attracted to the idea of the counterculture, um, especially the idea of like drug use as an attractive thing. And again, this is in a time where heroin addiction is almost like something to be admired because of like mm-hmm. the artists that were popular at the time, like mm-hmm. musicians and whatnot. So there was a lot of appeal there of like this idea. Of I mean, being, this is the time '96. I mean, it's like that's until recently like where we've grown up most of our lives like i mean that's where the heroin addiction peaks in this county too i mean 96 to 99 is roughly where like all that peaks until recently again but i mean you had you know cobain who was a admitted heroin user um sure lane staley from malice of chains was a heroin abuser um scott wyland so like all these like really prominent like musicians from the time and then the feeling of just it being like a peek into this counterculture that maybe wasn't quite like what your life was is, is, right. is really kind of, in almost the opposite way of its intent, you know, is kind of like invigorating, mm-hmm. like exhilarating kind of. Um, but definitely shows the opposite end of that where it's not like anything to be like glamorized. It's just a terrible. Mm-hmm. And Renton is almost, I don't know, it's, it's really a sad thing that like Renton is the one that gets away. Um, and again, Train Spotting too like addresses that sure. really, yeah. really adroitly. But no, when it comes up to rent easily, I'll go, I'll definitely watch. Right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So again, like probably, if I had to tell you like my five like seminal moments in watching film, like something where it was like an absolute sea change in my life of like how I viewed movies, this is probably among them. Um. I don't have any complaints about this movie. Like, I know you always ask that. There's nothing... Nothing I can think of about this movie that I dislike. Yeah. I don't think there's anything extraneous in this movie. Um, I think it's, like... I think it's sad and hopeful and humorous and depressing, like, all at the same time. Yeah, there's... there's I've seen a couple pieces of criticism in terms of weaknesses of the movie that people say that... It lacks a lot of clarity until the last half hour. And I don't... And, and they see that as a negative. And I, I don't disagree with them that it does seem to lack some clarity. Like, th- that there's no true story until, like, the last half when, like, the the deal, you know, becomes, yeah. like, the, the driving focus of the story. But, I mean, by that point, I think you could argue that it's, like there's a lack of focus because the character has no focus and then suddenly there's the character has focus and so now the story has focus so i could i could argue that it's that's purposeful um purposely done that way i, I mean i i guess i can kind of agree with that mm-hmm. like the the first two-thirds of the movie are about addiction you know right. they're about sure 
life in an impoverished area with no mm-hmm. hope for like advancement or success. I, I think mean, what they're saying is like there's just vignettes of those things, maybe. like and, and then it gains it actually becomes a story in the last thirty five minutes. But I think it's fractured. I mean, you kind of said this yeah. is fractured to sort of like illustrate what this addiction yeah. is for these right. people. Yeah. I mean, that's how I take it. I mean, um, you know, there's again like so many quotable things in this movie but there's the scene where they take the hike out into the highlands yeah. you know and they're talking about the you know Tommy's talking about the beauty of like Scotland and it's shite to be Scottish mm-hmm. you know what I mean so that's like this is how these men live their lives these boys and the mm-hmm. idea that they're just they're, they're shit basically and the only way to not be shit is just to be high you know that's their choice is to not let themselves like be like settle for being shit is like they might as well kill themselves in a way that's at least enjoyable, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean it's a really powerful movie, even um, you know, and I think I think it's universal in, in, in its relevancy. I don't think, I mean, certainly some things age it, you know, but I mean, not a lot ages it. You know, like, slightly, but again, because it's, I mean, because we're American, you know, Scotland's like such an alien place that sure. it. It doesn't fall into some of the same things that other movies from this time period do, which is where you can tell it's a movie from the 90s. Right. Like, there's certain movies, Seven, for instance, I think is a good example, where when you watch, and Seven is still a good movie, but Seven feels like a movie from the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some universality to train spotting that mm-hmm. elevates it above that, where you can watch it today and it still is... Especially with, like, the opioid crisis in this country. Sure. Like, it still is just as relevant today. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. Um, I don't think there's many things that date it, uh, necessarily. Yeah. And because it mu- uses music a little bit outside of its time period, sure. I think that helps, too. From the 70s to, right. like, that contemporary right. time, yeah. so sure. the 90s. Right. Um, anything else, Bill? No. Okay. I mean, if... It's not a movie that I think you can universally recommend because I definitely don't think it appeals to everyone, but as long as you're able to kind of accept that people can be terrible at times and get past that, like you don't need like a hopeful, happy ending, like I think it's definitely something that everyone should see. Yeah, if you're the type of person that sits there and says like, I don't understand why you can't just stop drinking, you probably don't want to watch this movie whatsoever, but I mean, if you could have a little bit of sympathy for some of that, then... um, you can, as, as awful as some of the things they do are, I think you can, you know, appreciate this movie. Um, so, your number one movie um, comes on the week that Burt Reynolds um, died, but your number one movie is Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Boogie Nights from 1997, um, starring Mark, Wa- Mark Wahlberg, um, Heather Graham, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, Phil Seymour Hoffman. Uh, William H. Macy, who, am I, who else am I leaving out? <laughs> like, I mean, it's another... Who's, Tom Jane? Oh, yeah. Um, it's another, like, who's who of um, supporting actors. Um, really, like, launched the career, in my opinion, of a lot of these supporting actors. Sure, absolutely. Like, indie yeah. darlings for... Yeah, for the next 15 like, years. Or job, even some to, to the present day. Sure. I mean, like... Um, John C. Riley specifically. Right, yeah. Um, I mean... <clears throat> Yeah, so, um, you want to go ahead and explain a little bit about the movie and what the, your main points are? Yeah, so, ostensibly this is a movie about a John Holmes-esque character with an enormous penis 
who becomes a pornographic star, who battles drug addiction, his own hubris rises, falls, sort of rises back again. Um, it's a really nice bookend. I didn't even think about this when I made the list, but I'm actually kind of happy about it now because it's a really nice bookend to Braveheart in a lot of ways because where Braveheart is a legitimate sweeping historical epic, Boogie Nights is just as much of an epic. It's just a more intimate epic about a smaller number of characters, sure. but over a broad period of time and dealing with something that's not some not an industry that people like to talk about openly, which is you know the pornography industry, um, but does so in a way that's not condescending to that industry and not mm -hmm. condescending to the people in it. Yeah. Um, even though it deals with that feeling of like distaste that people have for pornography yeah. several and times. And very little pornography, if you haven't seen it, very little pornography, like no pornography in it. And like, you know, there are scenes where they're filming porn, but it's yeah. like, there's nothing like, you know, about this movie that like, you know, this movie's not about the porn industry it's, when it comes down it's, to it's it. It's the but. Texas Chainsaw Massacre of porn movies in the sense that like, it makes you feel like you're seeing more than you're actually seeing. Right, right. Yeah. Like you're only ever, like you see... I mean, there's a number of, like... I mean, it has an R rating. It's not an NC-17 rating. number of naked women. You see a number sure. of, like, breasts. You see yeah. one prosthetic penis right, yeah. at a certain point in the movie. But it's all implied sex. Yeah. And it's more about the act of sex on, on screen and how those relationships develop between the people that are in, like, this industry. Yeah. Um, fantastic performances across the board. Um, the weakest and strongest performance in a lot of ways is Mark Wahlberg in my opinion um, I don't know how good of an actor Mark Wahlberg is but he definitely plays this character perfectly which is a guy who's not very bright has never really been supported by his you know his, his blood family which yeah. they show early in the film um, but feels that he's better than what he's been given right and is then thrust into this world where he is the preeminent figure for an, a, like a long amount of time. Implied alcoholic mother, right? Uh, like, just really mean. Yeah. I don't know if she's an alcoholic, but she's just a harridan, mm -hmm. basically. Um, weak, weak father who doesn't stand up to her or support his son, even though you can tell that he like sympathizes with his son. Mm -hmm. um, he's a high school dropout. He works multiple jobs. I mean, it's. He comes from a life where he would not have, like, had much success and then is thrust into somewhere where he becomes, like, immediately wealthy and immediately successful. And then because of his hubris, you know, kind of loses that. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's very, very much a hero's journey, like, where this guy, you know, ascends to a great height and then goes through this dark period and then kind of comes back through the acceptance of, like, the people that truly love him, which are these, you know, these characters that... I don't know if I could say should not be sympathetic, but for the majority of America, especially at the time period this movie takes place in, which is in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah. you know, you have, like, the moral majority and the religious right. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's a lot of anti-porn sentiment. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is written... I'm assuming, like, you know, this probably roughly the same year as the contract with America, you know? So, I mean, it's right the beginnings of that, like, new kind of right of the Gingrich right that's yeah. forming, you know, um, you know, 
that's kind of reestablishing some of those Reagan politics of the previous decade um, in a slightly new form that was very anti-porn. Yeah. Um, you know that that Reagan administration. So I mean, it's you know the, the whole like idea of like Tipper Gore being very anti, like very censorship prone. And right. Yeah. 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 Hillary too. I mean, sure. like during that period. Yeah. Um, a really interesting meditation in some ways too on what what is art like what equates to being art mm -hmm. and is art like subjective or objective yeah. um, because they generally feel like they're making artistic movies like in while they're making this pornography and it's it's laughable in a way because like their their performances are ridiculous as the characters playing actors playing a role in a pornographic movie but just like the joy and like the passion that they bring to those things um, where they because they believe that it's artistic you know where it is artistic um, and it sort of is also kind of touched upon later in the movie um, there's a scene towards the end of the film where uh, Tom Jane Philip Seymour or Tom Jane um, John C. Riley, and Mark Wahlberg are going to scam this you don't know what he is like some kind of drug dealer club owner out of money by selling them baking powder as cocaine um, and he talks about making mixtapes and how he's recreating the artist's version of a album by rearranging the music to his preference and so he's he feels like he's making art by using someone else's art but to fit his own viewpoint and I mean, it's a really small. It's not yeah. a small scene in the movie. It's a pivotal scene. In the movie. Yeah, no, I, it's basically the falling action of the movie is like right there. Yeah, I, I honestly didn't think about that thing, um, like whatsoever that you're talking. But about. he's he's so so proud of like listen because they're so the S sister Christian is legitimately playing in the scene, but is also like the soundtrack to that scene, and it's just punctuated by this. Chinese kid blowing up firecrackers and the tension of these coked out crazy like addicts trying to like work their scheme and you know Dirk Diggler who's Mark Wahlberg's character and um, Reed Rothschild who's Riley's character are like paranoid and they want to get out and Thomas Jane is like convinced that they're just going to like take all these guys money and stuff and so the guy's describing the rising action of Sister Christian like he's the one that wrote it and he's so proud of like talking about it while like the driving music of sister christian is like building tension in you like waiting for the scene to explode and it's the whole like boom 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 and, like just continuously like driving and it's it it to our point about train spotting like this is a scene where it's not just a soundtrack like it's that song is an integral part of the scene and it's just amazing the way that it plays out. And yeah. There's so much in the movie that, I mean, musically, because to me, like, music is such an important part of, like, watching a movie. And, like, a, a, a song in the wrong place can kind of ruin a scene, or a song in the right place can make a scene. You know, you got the Philip Seymour Hoffman, where he, he plays Scotty, who's, like, a <clears throat> sound man slash roadie for this, like, the crew of, like, pornographers. And he's, he's gay. But he's not, like, really, like, openly gay because he's kind of, like, afraid to come out. But he sees Mark Wahlberg for the first time and Sexy Thing is playing and you see, like, the rack focus on Mark Wahlberg. Mm. I don't know. There's just... It, 
so much like brilliance in that movie and so many just perfect beats. And again, it's another movie where it's it's, it's pretty long. I mean, it's, it's close to three hours, yeah, I think, minutes. right? Yeah. Doesn't feel like three hours like, at all. Like, like two forty eight popping flies by so fast. Yeah. Um, and for such like a such a taboo topic to talk about, just humanizes all these people and makes them lovable and pitiable, and it makes you like hope for them to like achieve the best. Yeah, I mean, I I see like you know. In terms of themes, it's like the thing that I see is is it's really it's about finding family. Um, it may be the again the place you don't expect it necessarily, but it's like that's what they are is they're one big family. And they, they call themselves that. I mean, yeah, right? Your old Jack Horner is really big on the idea of that, right? Like you know, Julianne Moore's character too. Yeah, like and it's like, well, they're then they're the mother and father. Like, yeah. and I mean, she even though she's having sex with. I mean, you even have that scene with um, Heather Graham where it's like she she asked her, right? It's like, you yeah, know... Will you be my mom? Yeah, say, you're my mom now. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you if you're going to be my right, mom. Yeah. You just need to say yes. Right. Yeah, and it's like, and that's what it is. Like, she's she's the doll, you know? I mean, they even frame it that way. There's a diner scene um, yeah, fairly it's early, early on. on. It's like, and it's like, that's what it is. It's like the parents and the, and the kids sitting across from one another. It's, like, it's the scene that leads up to... Um, Eddie from Torrance, Dirk yeah. Diggler has gotten a blowjob from Roller Girl. Right. And then they they go to the diner, and that's before they go back to Jack's house where right. he has sex with her for the first time. Yeah. It actually leads to him getting kicked out of his parents' house, which right. is a really yeah. hard, like, hard, harrowing But yeah, scene. I mean, all these people are people that, like, don't have real families anymore for whatever reason, and it's like they found, they found acceptance in this, you know, some of the oddball cast of characters... But it's like they, but they treat each other all like family, and, and none of them are very bright, which is which is interesting. Yeah. That like, so we talked earlier, like we we're talking about Glengarry Glen Ross, you know, like I bring up dialogue a lot, and this movie has amazing dialogue, but it's amazing in the sense that like, it's written, it's written to make these people sound stupid a lot of times, mm-hmm. like. Reed Rothschild, you know, Chess Rockwell, whatever, the John C. Riley character is not a bright man and right. never gets the point of any conversation he's in. Mm-hmm. But is still a compelling character. You know, Dirk Diggler is not a bright guy. And that like that's what bonds them together is this like lack of understanding of anything. Mm-hmm. Um Don Cheadle's character, uh, Buck, yeah. who's this, you know, he's a he's a I mean Don Cheadle's black, obviously. But he's like the African American male porn star in like their stable, yeah. who's into country music and who's constantly trying to reinvent himself, yeah. and doesn't understand like why he's not successful. Right. And it's like you have so much sympathy for that it's because character. he's right because he's always trying on. It's like he, yeah. I mean that's a really interesting character now. Now that I think about it, is like all the different personas he tries to take on in order to be accepted. Because yeah. he's basically he's the cowboy. He's like a village person because yeah. he's wearing like some weird caveman looking outfit at one uh-huh. point. Then he's like the space pharaoh. It's like the Bootsy Collins looking character. Yeah. Um, and then finally, like this woman who's also not very bright, this porn star woman who they fall in love with each other mm-hmm. because they both like sunrises more than sunsets. And it's like, right. I thought I was the only one that right. thought that. It's like, come on, like there's right. nobody else in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And then they form a family. Like, they're, yeah. like, honestly, like, probably the most successful people out of the yeah, whole movie. Yeah, right. Um, just, I don't know, like, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, this is another movie where I saw it, and I, I think I probably saw it again the next day. Like, I remember, um, what is this, 96? 97. 97? Yeah. So I was working at the movie theater at the time, and I came the first showing of a Friday, because I worked Friday nights, and was just, like, absolutely blown away by how amazing it was. Um, and then turned around, and that Saturday I came in and saw it again, and then I brought my girlfriend to see it the next week, um, which is something I did a lot when I was young. If I loved a movie, like, I would see it multiple times in the mm-hmm. theater. Never, I've never gotten tired of this movie. Um, I've seen this movie seven or eight times, maybe, in my life. Maybe more than that. And just blown away by it every time. There's always something small in it that just catches me um, every time I see it as well as I know it, like, dialogue-wise and scene-wise and whatnot. Um, Man, some heartbreaking stuff, like the... um, What's his name? William H. Macy character, it's just... The little Bill... Like, some of the things that impress me most about this movie are, like, this, like the way that Anderson films things. Like, there's the, um, there's the little, there's a, um, Sister Christian scene. Yeah. Which is extremely well filmed and cut. There's the opening track shot, like, um, The Boogie Nights scene when, like, they're going into the club. Yes. Yeah, yeah like, there's that really shot, good. which I watched, like, a mini documentary on that, like, last week about, um how they had to go about filming that shot. And I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about this is also his age, like it ties into this is like, is his age when he's doing this is that the man is 27 years old when he's filming this. And it's like, I don't know how to hell want a 27 year old, probably younger is my guess is writing this. Yeah. You know, because it's weighty material. Sure, m- mature enough to understand, like, that amount of, like, human pathos. Right. And be able to capture it in, like, dialogue and scene. Yeah, and then he, um, <clears throat> and then, like, the fact that he's able to craft the types of shots that he's able to craft, because there's that other tracker scene with the, with Little Bill. Oh, my God. With the amazing. suicide, yeah. and it's like, I mean, and... And it's like, you know, that's the, that's the climax of 1979, isn't it? That's the new decade is him it blowing is. his then, head off. And like, after he blows his head off, it's 1980. Right, yeah. It's like, it's the end of the decade. It's like, um, and then... Oh, that little smile he gives before he like puts the yeah. gun in his mouth and just... Yeah. So I want to talk about that really quick because mm-hmm. I, I I just watched this movie again today, so it's really yeah. fresh in my mind. Um, so that scene starts with... The, the beginning of that scene is the Philip Seymour Hoffman character trying to kiss yeah. Dirk Diggler yeah. and then failing at explaining why and Dirk Diggler, like, you know, uh, Mark Wahlberg's character understanding but not understanding, like, he doesn't get, like, why this is happening and Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, crying and, like, what is it, fucking idiot, right? He's, like, over and over. Um, I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, I'm an idiot. Like, I'm a know, fucking idiot. Yeah. He says that, like, right, five yeah, times. Yeah. And then it's, it goes inside and it follows, like it immediately goes inside and follows little Bill as he walks through a party mm-hmm. and it tracks behind him the entire time through interacting with a few people. And then he goes off screen and it picks him up again, like almost immediately on the other side of a wall and then tracks with him down the hallway to catching his wife having sex with a man, which is like the third time in the movie it's happened and 
you know, implied like implied that it's been happening for a very long time that she continuously embarrasses him by like mm-hmm. openly like flaunting her infidelity. Down the hallway, back up the hallway, outside, back to the cars. He goes into a car where it tracks in such a way that you can't see what he's doing. Then flips around and tracks behind him back into the house, back down the hallway, to where he opens the door and shoots him. And then pulls back tracking as he walks up the hallway to stop, and that's when he blows his head off. And it's like three and a half minutes. Yeah, it's not very long. Of like a single shot. But so, and the thing is, is like, everyone else is so excited for the 80s to start. And so there's... Don Cheadle's character's interaction with him, um, John C. Riley's character's interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, what's his name? The guy that's the magician. Um, oh, um, crap, I can't remember. The guy his that's name. in a lot of his movies on his yeah. his Dead Deadwood. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, his name. so yeah. like he has interaction, and it's also fluid, and so inevitable. Like when when Little Bill kills himself, it's very sad because he's one of the few like totally sympathetic characters like this is a guy that's devoted to the craft of being like the second director script manager or Ricky whatever. J Ricky J yeah. um who's a brilliant magician too by the way if yeah. you ever get to watch any of his like live performance stuff or whatever um I don't know just like so and so many little things in the movie that are like that where even the most minor character has beats and moments that just infuse so much humanity in like everything they do without ever having to belabor any points or there's the stuff with the colonel you know the guy that's like the financier of like all the pornography that turns out to be a pedophile and you know Horner like he originally is arrested for like having sex with a 15 year old but then he like and Horner's kind of on his side because like oh maybe you didn't know maybe she looked older but then Horner shows that he's truly, like, human because the guy reveals, like, well, you know, they found, like, much younger pornography, like, and I, I just like to look at him, I don't ever touch him, and then Horner, like, has to make, like, a moral choice. So it's taking this character that, from, like, a traditional, you know, Western viewpoint, is, like, an amoral character because he peddles in, like, sex, and completely applies, like, a moral standard to his decision that this is, like... You know, I can film, like, two adults having consensual sex, but I'm not going to, like, be a part of this. And just, like, abandons this man that's basically made him rich. And so many, like, things like that in the movie. Um, Burt Reynolds, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, like, passed away this week. Um, Amazing performance by Reynolds. Just so much gravitas and, like, cool, like, aloofness, but also, like, fatherly love this character who I don't know just like a, a, a porn king he's a director of porn movies it's like a millionaire living in like California and just I don't know again like, I would say most performances are really strong in this movie even small ones like Tom Jane's performance is like the strung out addict sure um even the guy I don't know the actor's name the guy that plays um the crazy guy that they go to, like, try and rip off with the cocaine. Oh, yeah. Um, like, that, that scene where he's talking about Sister Christian, it's so... Th- this is the opposite of Glengarry Glen Ross, in the sense that it's... 
it's realistic dialogue that's presented in an absolutely believable manner. Like, I can imagine us at the bar having a conversation about a song and having it play out almost exactly the same way when we've had a few drinks in this. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it's real dialogue that you're hearing, like, ambient dialogue from someone else or a yeah. conversation you're like, having. And I don't know that there's... And again, I, I, again I, I'm, I'm just astounded by the fact that he's so young when he does it. Yeah. Like, you know who's a good analogy for him, like, as a director and in terms of, like, his just mastery of craft at that young age is Scorsese. Hmm. Like, Scorsese's another guy, not so much, like, later, and maybe even, like, Coppola, like, early in his career, mm -hmm. where they can film scenes that feel, like, voyeuristic. Like, you're actually watching... And Anderson can break that because he does break the fourth wall, like, the way that he films things. Like, he definitely lets you know that you're watching a movie. Like, he'll speed up the, ca he'll speed up the camera. Sure. He'll, you know, overexpose scenes to make them washed out. He'll, like, do, like, hard rack focus and effects and stuff. But just the characters always feel so grounded in reality. And nothing feels... Nothing feels manufactured to me like in in the character interaction and it's it's really rare and you know you I, I know that this really impresses you and it's it's it can't be understated this is like a really young man making this movie mm -hmm. and about things that probably a man that young shouldn't be able to like understand or feel right <clears throat> I mean this is something you expect of a director that's in their like 50s or 60s where you know, they're making, like, their masterpiece and not a guy that's made one movie prior to that. And, like, we talked about this tonight prior to the podcast, but had also written Magnolia, which is another, like, amazing... Yeah, which we just found out tonight that it's like he had, had, it, he had Magnolia written in 96. Yeah. So it's like, you know, again, another movie that seems to have too much depth for someone who's 26 years old. Um, I mean, yeah, like... And I, I saw Boogie Nights... What would I have been 20 when Boogie Nights came mm -hmm. out and like 22 23 when Magnolia came out and those just to keep it on Boogie Nights like over the course of my life when I've seen it so I saw it in my 20 when I was 20 a few times then probably in my mid 20s in my late 20s early 30s in my mid 30s and then again like now watching it and it still speaks to me at every point in my life. Like, it still is relevant to every point in my life. And I don't know how many other movies or directors sure. have that ability. Like, even directors that I love, you know, I don't think have that same... I don't like all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies 100%. Like, I'm not a huge fan of um, The Master. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen Phantom Thread, you know. I love There Will Be Blood. I... I guess, like, Heart 8, I think, is okay. Um, but really, probably, like, the most masterful, like, American director, mm -hmm. I would say. Especially over the past, like, 25 years, 30 yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, my claim is you give him another 20 years delving into different genres that I, I think I mentioned earlier was that um, I think someday it's like he's the heir apparent to Kubrick in some ways. Yeah. I, as, as, as the, like, auteur of, you know of the of this generation basically yeah and you can I mean, and, and, and it's low key right now it's like it's like he's because really it's like 
nobody counts Hard Eight most of the time. They th- they think of it as like you know, which is still it's still a good movie, very confident. Yes, right, yeah. Very but no, but nobody counts that. It's like they start with Boogie Nights, and it's Boogie Nights, and um, you know, Magnolia, and people forget about um, Punch Drunk, Punch Drunk. You know, Love, and then it goes to There Will Be Blood. Then it goes yeah. to The Master, and then this new movie. But it's like. I mean, again, he's 47, 48 years old. You give him another, like, 20 years and another, like, you know, five or six movies. It's like his, depending on how that turns out. I mean, it's like he has a filmography possibly that rivals Kubrick. Kubrick. And maybe Hitchcock to some degree. Hitchcock will have more movies, but it's like you look at his good movies and it's like he might have the movies, good movies, to rival that too. I mean... So just just from the perspective of this movie, and you can like listen to the the Palm Door version or episode where I talk at length about Pulp Fiction and how much I love it. I mean, I honestly think that this is even if Pulp Fiction was on this list, Boogie Nights is still my favorite movie mm-hmm. of the nineties. Um, I just I, I I think it's flawed. I think given distance, you you might be right. I mean, like I'm especially given like the trajectory of their careers afterwards. Yes, I mean, sure. definitely Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. has proven to be a more adaptable and eclectic director where he doesn't fall in the same tropes where Tarantino I think is kind of almost a character of himself yeah. now. I don't think I, I, I still refuse to say that like Tarantino is one note necessarily like some people I think are starting to say, but um but it's limited notes. Uh, I, I think that I think that Tarantino's uh, Tarantino and Anderson are both aficionados and almost like savants when it comes to, to movies and movie history, mm. right? Like you can see sure. they wear their yeah. their love and their whatever homage on like their sleeves, right? Mm-hmm. But Tarantino is precious about the movies that he loves to the point where he's like almost fetishistic about how he like pays tribute to him, whereas I think Anderson is much more abstract in the sense that like, like you can feel like some Cassavetes when you watch Anderson, and like you brought this up earlier when we were talking, like prior to the podcast, you can feel like Altman in yeah. Anderson, and you yeah. can feel um, like I think you can feel like some Scorsese in Anderson, the way he mm-hmm. films like violence and stuff. I think you can see I, when you said Scorsese, you can see that in Boogie Nights. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like you can definitely I mean, see Bo- that. Boogie Nights and Mean Streets. Yeah. Even though they're very dissimilar, yeah. could almost be like like you watch Mean Streets and then you watch Boogie Nights, and you're almost like watching like a continuation. Yeah. Of like a story of life or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And <clears throat> and even like Taxi Driver to an extent too, like fits in that same like semi I don't know like world or whatever. Where it feels like real, um, I don't know. Like to me, that it's 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 a flawless movie. There's nothing, nothing I dislike about Boogie Nights. There's nothing that I feel is extraneous. I feel like there's like I would take another half hour of Boogie Nights honestly because mm-hmm. I feel like there's certain plot points that kind of just sort of peter out a mm-hmm. little bit, even though maybe they're explained somewhat. Like I want like I. I like that world, even though it's not a world that's presented in like the most glamorous way. So, um, yeah, the only really negative review I found of it, and not even negative, um, completely, is Gene Siskel. 
um, thought it was an excellent movie, but he felt it was empty as well, and it left him cold. Um, and when he had, when he made him clarify, he um, said that it, uh, uh, he didn't learn anything new about the world after watching the movie. Um, and Ebert, um, Ebert, Ebert starts to give him a thrashing before they break the commercial. And I would play the audio, but the audio is really poor quality from the internet, um, off of YouTube. So, um, it wouldn't translate very well, I don't think. But, um, uh, Ebert, Ebert starts to give him a good thrashing about not learning anything new about the world from the movie. Because Ebert, um, Ebert gave it four, four stars and is a really big fan of this movie. Um, but, um. I don't know if there's even anything to say to that um, necessarily because we've already talked about, I think, what you can take from it um, yeah. <clears throat> in some ways. Siskel, Siskel is weird because I, I agree with Siskel a lot, but there's just certain times where it's the same thing with Ebert and horror, like violence, yeah. especially what he considers to be gratuitous violence. Like there's certain things that I think the Siskel sociologically or psychologically just can't get past and I think that it's it's hard for him to like things that yeah I think it's things that he yeah it's like if he can't understand it then it's no good yeah like you know it's like and I don't I also think I get the idea that Ebert Ebert thinks more about things than Siskel does yeah um Siskel either kind of just reacts like gut reaction to the movie. Yeah, maybe Ebert's more like philosophical and Siskel's more like visceral. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like, it's like, Siskel's more more pragmatic. It's like, teach me a lesson about the world. Yeah. You know, where Ebert's like, you know, let me think about this movie and see what I can gather from it that might, you know, inform my impression about the world. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think philosophical's probably right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a movie that I would say that everyone should see, and I think it's an incredibly important movie, um, both in terms of like the 1990s and also just in terms of like American cinema and film in general. Um, but not everybody's cup of tea. Like, there's some things in it that people would find like pretty offensive. I think, yeah. especially if you're like put off by nudity. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's less offensive in 2018 than it may have been in 1998, honestly. It's still not something I would watch with my parents at 41 years old, so I don't know. Hmm. Okay. I mean, there's, like, anal sex discussed, like, openly. I don't want to sit around yeah. with my mom and right, listen yeah. to people talk about yeah. butt sex. So. Um, okay. Um, okay, so yes, very good list. Um, you know, I'm, I was just happy to talk about a lot of these movies um there's a few ones um just like a i i honestly feel that maybe at some point we could revisit this and do like another top five in the 90s because there's a mm-hmm. lot of movies from the 90s that i love yeah um you know but specifically like big lebowski fargo heat the professional edward scissorhands i mean all magnolia which we talked about um and actually another director I also have L.A. Confidential, yeah, really um, good. Heat, Usual Suspects, um, some things you might not put as high, like um, more popular things like Forrest Gump. And, um, I like Forrest Gump a lot. Shawshank. Shawshank I'm um, not a fan of Shawshank. Yeah. Um, Shawshank is a fine Goodfellas. Yeah, Goodfellas is really good. Um, there's one director that I, I think 
needs to be on like a different list and I've actually kind of we've, we've talked about this a little bit but I won't spoil anything um, but Todd Solons is mm. like one of the quintessential directors of the 90s that fell off like super hard but Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness are two movies that are just yeah so uncomfortable to watch but definitely like Again, like seminal moments in my movie going career feels like minimizing a little bit to say that it's uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, it's almost impossible to watch, and definitely some people not impossible to watch. I think. Yeah. yeah, that you can revisit like easily. Sure. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of fun like doing yeah. the list and talking about it. Like it's, I mean, obviously when we grew up, so it's like really it's close to home. Yeah, kind of mentioned that in the beginning. Yeah, so. Okay, um, so if anybody has any ideas uh, for a list they'd like to see, you can email us at Two Guys Five Movies. That is the number two and five, Two Guys Five Movies at gmail.com. Uh, you can also go ahead and friend us on Facebook at Two Guys Five Movies uh, or follow us on Twitter um, again at Two Guys Five Movies. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you have a good week. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night.